When I was a kid, uh, I used to go to, can we get the picture? The next one. There we go. This camp. Um, Luther Point Bible Camp. Grantsburg, Wisconsin. That's the chapel. I used to go there. And uh, uh, one of the things at camp, one of my memories, is I would always run into interesting people that I didn't otherwise meet. And I also would run into the canteen. Uh, if you have been Bible camp, they, they always have these canteens, right? We, we work so hard to make the healthiest food at our things, and then we try to offset our budget by selling junk. Uh, and, uh, so, and you could go to the canteen, and they had all sorts of stuff for sale there. Um, and you would, the way you would buy it is we didn't have, bring, carry money around camp of the week. We would have a card. It was called a canteen card. And it was a big grid, and it had all these different denominations, 25s and 10s. And so you would give them the money at the beginning, and then they would block off so that you'd have as many squares left as you had money. It was kind of how it worked. So then when you came to the, uh, came to the canteen, when you got your time, you could buy something. And whatever you bought, they would just mark it off this card, right? So you had this little canteen card, and you would go in there, and... Uh, you could look around the canteen at all these things you could buy. And I was always very, I was always very amazed. It was all these things I'd never seen growing up, full of sugar. Um, I, I, I won't say my household was sugar-free growing up, but, you know, it was a special treat to get a frosted mini-wheat. Um, and so I, I, just didn't grow, I just didn't grow up with a lot of sugar. But you get to this canteen, oh my gosh, this was sugar on a stick. And, and, and rolled up sugar, and frozen colored sugar on a stick, and sugar in a sandwich, and, and stretchy, chewy sugar. And, and my favorite was the sugar in a packet with a sugar, powdered sugar with a sugar stick, and then you, could, you were supposed to dip the powdered sugar in the sugary stick. And then the guys in my cabin, to show how cool they were, would pour out the sugar and then divide it into lines with their sugar stick and go, like this. Like, you know you're a lame, small-town, Midwestern kid when that's what you do to be cool and edgy. And, uh, but, and we would. It was all the sugar. Wow. Well, I, I wasn't used to it. I didn't buy that much of it. Um, and so I'd get to the end of the week, and I had extra, and I'd have extra money. And I remember they'd, they'd get to the end of the week, and they would ask, what do you want to do with the extra money? You can, we can give it back to you, or you can donate it all to LCA, that's what it was back then, LCA World Hunger. And I, I looked at it for a second, and I'm like, yeah, I'll give the money away. It wasn't a ton. Um, and I felt really good about that. And I drove back, I rode back home, and I felt really good about giving my canteen card money to world hunger. Fast forward years later. I'm in a different state. I'm now a camp program director. And so I suggested to the staff, hey, here's an idea. Why don't we let the kids donate their extra canteen money to ELCA world hunger? Oh, my gosh, you would have thought. Oh, my gosh, they freaked out. Oh, you, you're pressuring them to give. Oh, you can't do that. That's, that's extortion. That's stealing candy from a baby. And I'm like, 
is that the right metaphor you want to use? Because we were just selling candy to them and using it to offset our budget. But get, asking if they want to give money to the third world children is somehow an abuse of power? Hmm. What a contrast in values it was. You know, I, I sit there and think to myself, what's the worst that could happen? What's the worst that could happen? These kids grow up giving money away all the time? Oh, God, no. I want my kid to be a corporate tycoon who raids factories, fires the employees, sells off the equipment, and buys a yacht. That's like my kid to do. None of this giving stuff away. Right? I'll bet they're, you think I'm crazy. I'll bet their parents will sit there and say, yeah, if my kid becomes a do-gooder and gives it away, what am I going to say at the cocktail party? Oh, my kid works at a social agency for single moms. Oh, my son works at Goldman Sachs and does hedge fund management. <laughs> you think that's a joke? My parents, when I was, when, when I was in seminary, I was doing, uh, you have to do a summer at a hospital. And uh, Christy was up in Boston, so I just opened my book. Where can you do a summer chaplain internship? in Boston. And I found this hospital, Massachusetts General. Hmm, looks interesting. So I applied. I had no idea in the hospital world about rankings and prestige and all this kind of stuff. I didn't realize this is like a John Hopkins kind of grade hospital. Well, I just thought, oh, it's cool downtown. Well, I got in. So my parents are out in San Diego now with my uncle, uh, who's a lawyer and did okay for himself. He lived down the road from Dr. Seuss for a while. <laughs> Literally, I'm not lying. We went to visit him. He's like, oh, there's Dr. Seuss's house uh, in La Jolla. So my parents are at this gay, some gated community, Rancho something O in San Diego, visiting. And they're, they're around the party, and they're, oh, what does your son do? They're doing the, what does your kid do? And sure enough, you know, this one's a lawyer here. Oh, this one's managing this here. And my dad goes, my son works at Massachusetts General Hospital. <laughs> oh! Oh, they were impressed. Well, what does he do there? And he goes, he's a chaplain on the burn floor. And they went, oh, that's nice. <laughs> it's, I realized in that world, in that culture, there was no bragging rights for devoting your life to service. You know? It just, it wasn't, and it doesn't wrong with being a doctor at Mass General, but isn't it weird how that works? So anyways, what a contrast in values. The fear that our kids would grow up just giving money away too much. The rest of my life, I was impacted by that little canteen card thing. It still sticks to me. I can picture it as clear as day, looking into that canteen, right? Because when I look back on this, to me, this is a, perfect example of the kind of choices we make with our money. Because on the one hand, you have instant gratification, the candy. I mean, it's a perfect example of it. It tastes good. It gives you a little bit of buzz, and maybe even a little taboo, right? Your dentist tells you not to use it, right? But you're a kid, and your parents are telling you you should probably have a little bit less. As an adult, your waistline is telling you you probably should have a little bit less. But the more you think about not having it, the more you want it. 
It's the problem. It's the problem with giving things up in general. It's one of the struggles we have as human beings with dieting, right? Because you say, okay, at this point, I'm going to give up this, and I'm going to give up this, and I'm going to give up this, and pretty soon you've got this long list of things that you're that you're abstaining from, and and that, and but yet, but yet, as soon as you leave your house, well, you don't even leave the house. As soon as you turn on your TV, what do you see? Cheetos, Doritos, Taco Bell, you know. The Taco Bell one never entices me quite as much. But what do you see? All the things you're not supposed to have. And then you go out and it's more things that you can't have and you're just reminded of it all the time, everywhere you go. And everything becomes a willpower battle. Every Christmas party when they pass around the cookie tray. right? Every time you go with the guys to the wings place and they order a plate of wings and then they bring this big fat plate and they put it right down in front of you. And if the table is long, the waitress will break it up to make sure there's wings in front of everybody's face. And you're like, okay, I'm only going to have two, and then I'm going to eat a bunch of apples at home. I'm only going to have two and eat apples at home. And then you eat one of them, and it's like, oh. And, but, but, but say you're successful, so then you succeed. Well, what happens when you start cutting yourself, when you start cutting yourself off? Well, they've proven this. What happens is then your body goes into hunger mode and floods your brain with hormones that trigger a hunger response. So then it, makes, it shoots your cravings higher. and makes it more willpower. So now you literally can't help thinking about it. And now everything you think about is what you can't have and what you can't do. And you become controlled by your lack and consumed with dissatisfaction. What you can't, shouldn't do is everything you think about. That's why I know for myself that, that sheer dieting only gets me so far, because eventually I, I don't have that willpower. Some people have amazing willpower. My willpower breaks down eventually. It's easier for me to say, okay, I'll cut back, but I'll get to the gym some more, right? I'll try to stuff myself with some fruit before I go to the potluck. You know, it has sugar in it. Maybe I get a little bit, an apple high. <laughs> I'm better at replacing the unhealthy with the healthy than just giving up. The idea that is shifting attention. So I'm not constantly thinking about all the things to avoid and shifting it from that to the goals and plans I have for myself. You know, to get more fit, have more energy, have more stamina. Vanity. We all work out for vanity. You're better from switching from, what, from where you go to get your satisfaction than trying to live unsatisfied. Replace one thing for another. So the giving doesn't feel as much like giving up, but just finding satisfaction elsewhere. And contrary to what some preachers will tell you, God does not want us to live unsatisfied lives. God wants us to get satisfaction, but maybe not in the way we think. It's just the world has a different definition of it. Let's go to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. Who? You know the song? Who? Right? Everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and you that have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. 
Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Prophet puts it so beautifully, doesn't he? You who have nothing, whose lives are filled with lack and the endless reminders of what you don't have, come to me, and I will give you something that will fill you up. And you that have no money, you that have money, why are you wasting it on stuff that doesn't fill you up, that doesn't leave you better, that leaves you empty? God is not saying to all these people, stop buying all the tasty bread and wine and deprive yourself of pleasure, you know, and if you have enough willpower, I'll let you into heaven. That isn't what he's saying. It doesn't say that. God is saying the world doesn't satisfy you, but I do. And what does that look like? Isaiah 58. If you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. This is one of those paradoxes of faith. We get by giving. We are satisfied in having less. When the hungry and afflicted have enough, we all win. God brings his blessings to the community that gives to those in need. Why did I not feel bad when I gave up that canteen money? Because God was filling me with a deeper satisfaction. I was trading the food that does not fill for the food that does. And I didn't feel like I was depriving myself at all. God is not asking us to live unsatisfied lives. He's offering us a better satisfaction. One of the things that makes uh, I think giving so hard these days in America is that we live in a world where we are constantly bombarded by images of the things we could have. You know, every TV commercial, internet commercial, billboard, ad, they're all saying, look what you could have. Every Instagram feed of those, you know, those childless young couples with perfect, you know, six-pack abs who manage to somehow visit every national park in America and stand at every Icelandic waterfall and never seem to gain any weight while traveling or run out of money. I don't know how they do it. Maybe their dads work at Massachusetts General Hospital. <laughs> but what do you see? What I don't have. Right? Every Facebook feed that shows you everybody else's better vacations and their shinier new cars, it reminds you every day over and over of what you lack. And that's intentional. I'll make you feel empty, but promise to fill your void for a price. So when you get the money in your head, you kind of already spent it. Because you've been thinking about what you really want to do with it. Right? You're kind of planning, you're already planning what you're going to do, realizing it's not really as much as you really want, but you squeeze a little more pleasure out of it. And then when you do think about giving, your mind starts weighing all that against what I could do with the money and it starts to feel like an opportunity cost. If I give this away, I'm missing out on X, Y, Z. 
Which is why this is a spiritual issue, a deeper issue, than just about budgeting. Because it's where we find our fulfillment and joy in life. But I say, what if we took the money you had, whatever amount, and don't spend it right away? Right? It's kind of less than you always give your kids. Don't let the money burn a hole in your pocket. The analogy doesn't work as well when your money's all online. Don't let the phone burn a hole in your pocket. I don't know. But we say that. But say you got the money. Just sit on it a little and weigh out what you could do with the money. What would have the most impact? Make a list if you're a list person. In column A, you can make a really fancy list. In column A, you put the boring, responsible stuff. Bills, savings, car repairs, things you know that are good for you, but you aren't going to get a high off them. I don't get a high off car repairs. Then in the next one, we'll call it column B. Put the recreational things, entertainment options. Cruises, trips, vacations, dinners out, electronic gizmos and toys. In the third column, put in some of the things you could do with the money if you gave it away. Think of the missions you could fund, the church and the work it does. Think of world hunger or the capital campaign. Now, before you decide, think about what will have the biggest impact. What will make the biggest difference in the long run? Not just the short run. What will have the biggest impact on the bigger picture and not just me? Where will I get the most satisfaction? Will it be from gaining or watching others get satisfaction in their need? What will make you happier with yourself? I remember when I was on a camp board. You can tell I spent a lot of time at camp. When I was on a camp board... I'd now moved up to the top tier. We were all about fundraising. And I remember that some of the biggest donors at this camp, uh, they would go out, our, our development person would go out, and, I mean, go out to these dinky little towns in Wisconsin, you know, and, oh, we're visiting Ethel, our major donor, you know, and you'd think Ethel lives in a, as a major donor, lives in some giant house. She doesn't. She lives in some little farmhouse built in 1890 or something like that. You'd go in there and it looked like a, a museum of night from 1960, like nothing had changed. You know? Everything was the same, but there's tons of pictures of the kids and grandkids everywhere. And then Ethel would write a check for six or seven digits. And you'd think, man, she could with that kind of money, she could have been living in a mansion. Instead of driving that cutlass Sierra, <laughs> keeping the mechanic in business. A Lamborghini for that much. And what does she do? She gives it to the Bible camp. Why? Because she wants the kids to know the joy of knowing Jesus that made a difference in her life. And she wants them to have that. And her life was not built on material stuff. It was family, and it was church, and it was community. And I, don't, I never heard of any of those donors going to, coming back later going, you know, I regret it. I wanted to get that Armani suit, but I just couldn't. Instead, they got the joy of seeing the kids' faces when we'd show them the pictures. The dollars accomplished so much more in the long run and the big picture. There was a joy and a satisfaction in that. It's the satisfaction that the prophet talked about. 
the one that comes from satisfying others. So at our church, we got this capital campaign we're doing. You might have heard about it. We're asking for a lot of money. And we're not doing it just to keep a building going. You don't keep a building going to keep a building going. We're doing it to have a place for ourselves, our kids, the kids out there who don't come, the people in town who haven't even come here yet. We're doing it so that people can have a place to worship God and find God. This is about a bigger picture and a longer run and a deeper joy. It comes from that satisfaction of knowing that you gave something good for others. And the joy of knowing, of seeing the faces on the next generation that gets to know Christ. And this isn't a satisfaction that will leave us empty, because God promises that we won't be left empty. I'll leave you with what the Apostle Paul said uh, in his letter to the Philippians. He said, And my God will satisfy every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Amen.